Funkers, we're back. Episode five of What the Funk. And this is one that I've been really keen on really ever since the Inflation Reduction Act came out. I don't really understand the Inflation Reduction Act. I think that you two on the call have unique perspectives on it. Karthik, really from the energy technology side and ESG as a whole. And then Dave Stewart, with your experience as a vice president of HSE, now running operations over at Greenfield Environmental, probably have another view of it and how it may directly impact and affect the oil and gas industry. So we'll get to know these guys a little bit and then jump into the meat of it, which really is breaking down for those of us who may not have rocket science level intelligence. What exactly is the Inflation Reduction Act and how does it affect emitters? So Karthik, we'll start with you. You've been on my podcast before. It was back with Tim when we were on Tripping Over the Barrel. Why don't you give kind of a quick highlight of who you are, who Actual is, and then Dave, we'll jump into you and some of your background and then jump into it. Absolutely. Uh, Jeremy, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me today. So my name is Karthik. I'm one of the co-founders of a company called Actual. Um, so my background uh, actually originally started in aerospace. So I did a PhD in aerospace engineering. Um, then I went into consumer electronics. Um, so I was co-founder and CTO of a consumer electronics company. Um, basically had a kind of a unique opportunity to, to take a product from basically napkin all the way out to high volume mass production. So kind of firsthand, how do you set up manufacturing lines overseas? How do you uh, make a supply chain work from scratch? How do you turn that into you know, products that are uh, on the shelf at, at Best Buy on Amazon? Um, once we got acquired, I thought to myself, you know, I did a PhD at this point, I could do something in the aerospace world. Uh, so I went to Airbus, um, and I started a program at Airbus called Airbus UTM. Um, it's called Ultiscope then, it's called Airbus UTM now, um, but basically designing the future of air traffic management and air traffic control. Um, so how do you take delivery drones, autonomous air taxis, autonomous cargo jets, things like that, and integrate them into an airspace um, that really hasn't changed very much uh, since essentially post-World War II. Mm. Um, and as part of that, spent a lot of time working with uh, regulators, transportation officials, um, and started to see that a lot of the challenges that I was trying to solve in terms of modernizing air traffic control infrastructure was the same kind of challenge that the you know, environmental ministers, the transportation ministers, the energy ministers around the world were grappling with when it came to thinking about climate, and energy, and things like that. Um, so a big gap in the market decided to start actual case, essentially help decision makers, whether they're in governments, whether they are in corporations, essentially figure out what should our capital plans look like in order to meet our environmental goals, our sustainability goals, our production goals, our revenue goals. Um, one of the things that we've seen is that um, ESG and sustainability, you don't hit it without investing physically in the real world. Mm. And that's what we're doing is building tools to help the people who are making those investment decisions actually figure out what to invest in and whether or not that investment is going to get them to their goal or not. So before we turn this over to Dave Karthik, as it specifically relates to oil and gas, what are some of the things that you're seeing oil and gas companies do? Is it pneumatics? Is it electrification of fleets? Um, you know, certainly we're hearing more about, uh, carbon footprint reduction, emissions reduction, scope one, scope two, scope three. But as it relates to most of the listeners that we have on here, like what are some of the themes that we've seen over the past, I don't know, I guess year, year and a half for oil and gas companies as they look to, to start modeling out their ESG and their emissions? So I think there's a couple of things. Um, I think at this point, everybody has some level of a handle on their accounting and their reporting. Um, to various degrees of, of maturity, of course. But um, I think at this point, it's table stakes, right? What does that look like? Um, I think in terms of where the companies themselves are, um, whether it's in terms of reducing emissions in their existing business line or looking at creating new business lines, diversifying, shutting down businesses, it's all over the map. Um, it really depends on where you are, right? Are you upstream? Are you downstream? Depends on how diverse your business is already. Um, and it depends also on your customer base. Um, so there really is no one size fits all, right? I think this is one of those really interesting kind of challenges where each company is going to have to think about, are we 
trying to put ourselves in a position where 20 years from now, we have the same businesses today, but operating a little bit differently? Or are we going to be a business where 20 years from now, we're in a totally different business? We may have the same name, we may have more revenues, um, but we're actually delivering a different product to our customers who may be entirely different customers as well. Um, so there's there really isn't a one size fits all that we're seeing. It's, it's yep. really very and and I think that ambiguity has created some confusion, which is mm-hmm. kind of why you're here today to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act. Yep. Without further ado, Dave Stewart. Dave, I don't know you quite as well as I know Karthik, but you and I did cross paths back when you were running HSE for Bonanza Creek, Colorado-based operator, probably about six or seven years ago, and I've followed your career path since. Now on to Greenfield. So give us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And how'd you get into the HSE, environmental sustainability side of oil and gas? <clears throat> sure, Jeremy. Thanks for the introduction. Um, yeah, as you stated, I've I've worked for three different ENP operators over my years. Um, <clears throat> Bonanza Creek is one of them. Crestone Peak is another. And then in mm-hmm. Canna, oil and gas. Um, so had a 16 years of direct experiencing managing all these types of issues and problems for uh, these companies. Uh, prior to that, I did a lot of consulting for a variety of different industries. Uh, air quality is truly my technical background. I started out of college uh, doing air quality measurement and emissions work in California and then in Wisconsin. And since I've been all over the uh, the world doing emissions quantification and emissions measurement uh, and then leverage those experiences to help oil and gas companies here in Colorado with um, EHS in general. Uh, Air quality is a huge issue here in Denver Front Range due to the ozone non-attainment and the amount of regulation we have put in place here in Colorado and how that's bleeding over the rest of the country Mm. uh, as a model for for, uh, regulating the industry, oil and gas industry. And uh, so it's just uh, really relevant to our conversation today. And I look forward to talking with you more, Jeremy. Thanks. Yeah, Dave, thank you for, for coming on. I think the Carthex in California, you're in Colorado as, as am I, just, just very high level. Uh, can, can you, Dave, outline some of the differences in how states approach emissions in, in California versus Colorado? Is it sort of one in the same? Is it tremendously different? Like, give me any observations that you might have between those two states. Well, California and Colorado, believe it or not, are fairly similar in, spe- in the spectrum because of the, they have advanced air quality regulation compared to most of the other states, um, especially in the West. Uh, I think it comes down to the politics of the state and, and what they're trying to achieve from an air quality standpoint. So as far as different states go, they're radically different. Uh, Wyoming's much different than Colorado, which is different than North Dakota and Texas. Um, and each has their own process and unique uh, compliance program as well as reporting program. So a guy like Karthik, I, you know, can uh, commiserate with you on trying to develop systems that can meet all those types of requirements because they are very unique state by state. And even in Colorado, down to the county and the municipality level, mm-hmm. as far as reporting emissions go. So vastly different, um, you know, environmental policy is different ways to attack environmental problems and some have chosen to do more proactive means of working with the operators and getting ahead of this others have chosen a more retroactive sort of penalty type approach uh, which kind of leads into the inflation reduction act it, it really is an emissions penalty act on those that are uh, emitting methane and and other greenhouse gas emissions so um, that's my perspective on it but Look forward to hearing yours, Karthik. Yeah, I, I am too. And and I think that that leads me into, and maybe Karthik, this is a question for you as we jump into the, the bulk of this conversation, which was what the hell is the Inflation Reduction Act? Because there's a lot in there. But Dave mentioned the differences between states. What they have in North Dakota versus Texas versus Colorado versus California is different. Is the Inflation Reduction Act designed to create uniformity throughout the lower 48 or, or what exactly, maybe even taking a step back from that, what is the Inflation Reduction Act? And then how is this going to affect or maybe unify states from a either reporting or emissions reduction perspective, if it does? Yeah. So it's interesting. The, the Inflation Reduction Act 
the goal really is looking at what's driving inflation today. Obviously, a huge amount of money supply going in to creating an, a huge amount of demand. That gives us a really good signal of what consumers are looking to buy, right? Um, and one of the things that drives inflation is when supply isn't meeting demand. When you have a lot of cash out there and everyone wants to go buy an EV, guess what happens to the price of EVs? They skyrocket. When everyone wants to go and buy a heat pump for their house, when everyone wants to go buy an induction stove, they want to put solar on the rooftop X and Y and Z. So the Inflation Reduction Act, there's a portion in there around the methane fines. Um, and that's going to increase costs for a lot of oil and gas companies. Um, but there's a huge portion in there um, that has to do with essentially providing subsidies in the form of tax credits, right? So you have okay. to do something to get something. This is not, here's a check, go have fun. This is, you've spent money, so I'll give you money back in return. Um, but there's a huge amount of money for increasing the supply of these goods, right? So there's incentives for imp increasing the mining of materials like lithium to make batteries. There's huge amounts of incentives for making battery factories and EV factories and doing a lot of production domestically. Um, but there's also a demand component to this. Uh, there are incentives for people to go and buy electric trucks, commercial trucks, right? Which essentially, in many cases, will actually cover the entire price difference between a diesel truck and the electric version. Mm. Um, so essentially what, what this bill is saying is that a lot of new technology, whether it has to do with climate or whether it has to do with um, just electronics in general, for example, the first few generations of a product are always very expensive. And as you go through the manufacturing process, generation after generation, you're getting better at manufacturing, but you're also doing things in higher volume, which means mm -hmm. the prices come down. Yep. And so what the IRA is really trying to do is bring down those initial costs in terms of what's being passed on to the consumer. So building that first generation electric truck is going to be really expensive because it's the first time you've got to build a factory. You don't know what you're doing. So you're making a bunch of mistakes and all this kind of thing. But by subsidizing that, you're bringing that cost much closer to the existing generation of things. Mm. And what that means then is when the demand is there for this new generation of things, you don't see it in the inflation, right? Because the cost that gets paid is the same. So that the price of that basket of goods, which is what drives inflation is, is kind of similar. Um, of course, inflation happens much more quickly than you're going to get these factories built. So there's a question of whether it's actually going to reduce inflation um, or not. Uh, but that's what the bill is named. Um, so that's at a very high level what the bill really is about, right? Is We've seen where consumer pressure is going. We're seeing where international pressure is going. We're seeing investments that are being made in the European Union. We're seeing where investments are happening in Asia Pacific, in, in a lot of the countries there. This basically is how do we ensure that American companies are producing goods that are competitive on those stages as well. Fascinating. No, I, th I think that's a great grassroots explanation. And Dave, I want to turn it over to you on really, you know, certainly everything that Karthik said, um, how that resonates with you, and then also the view from the oil and gas company. Um, not just the oil and gas company, but the oil and gas services company, like a Greenfield Environmental, that's going around effectively um, looking to be uh, an emissions reduction play, plugging and abandoning various wells. Talk a little bit about how the IRA has a very direct impact for oil and gas. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Uh, so I, I share a lot of the same thoughts that Karthik had with regards to uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. Definitely provides financial incentives for innovation and, and all those types of things. But the other thing that I point out is it, it really does bring a... <clears throat> a large focus on emissions reduction for oil and gas industry specifically. And, okay. and, it, and in addition, it provides money for methane research as far as monitoring goes and techniques to reduce emissions. So um, it, it, you know, it's both a carrot and a stick, right? We, we have the, the carrot being, um, yeah, we'll, we'll give you some money to go out and invest in new technology and try to reduce your emissions. But at the same time, it has two big sticks, the waste emissions charge fee and the federal lands waste fee. So 
both of those fees um, are very impactful to the oil and gas industry um, and and drive change. You know, we 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 constantly in the oil and gas industry are striving to do better. Um, and so a number of the companies that have always been working on this won't be heavily impacted by the by the waste emissions change fee, to be hmm. honest with you. It's going to be those companies that have kind of languished or not focused on this as a as a priority or those companies that have older assets where just the return on investment has prevented them from doing things that uh, other companies are doing. It's just cost prohibitive and the, the play would not no longer be economic for them. So we're, we're in a, an interesting time here in the U.S. where we need uh, as much uh production as we possibly can get. Uh, You're seeing that in Europe and elsewhere around the world. But at the same time, we need to do so in a much more efficient way. And this bill provides that path towards um, helping companies reduce emissions and incentivizing them with that stick approach is they have to pay if they don't reduce emissions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think it's going to be very hard on the small operator, to be honest with you. I think Mm. the large operator that works across multiple basins and has advanced systems in place and has been working on this for a long time will be less impacted than the mid to small size ENP operator. Um, So I think there's opportunities here for, for a lot of us that are in this ESG space to help companies, help them comply with this, help reduce their liability and their risk overall. Uh, and basically take advantage of the carrots that are in the in the IRA as well to help them achieve this in as economic a way as possible. You know, Dave, you have run HSE groups, right? Health, safety, and environmental EHS, whatever order you wanna you wanna put it in. And yep. to me, when I really started first dealing with people that have HSE titles or objectives within oil and gas companies, it seemed like a necessary evil and much like a tactical position. That's really shifted. A lot of these people who are in those roles now are charged with strategy around emissions reduction, with beyond just telling us what the spills were and reporting them, but going way ahead of that, right? So that we can forecast what those emissions and what the carbon footprint is actually going to look like. Have you seen that shift as well in your 16 years from more tactical response to strategic and a much larger seat at the table within the boardroom? Absolutely. Uh, That's been basically my whole career. Uh, You know, when I first started out, yeah, EHS wasn't nearly as taken for as seriously at the uh, leadership level. I think safety always has been, but as far as the environmental and some of the the air quality aspects, uh, they were dealt as a business expense that needed to be managed. And that has definitely shifted into a much more strategic role, um, especially here in Colorado. You know, it's been mm-hmm. ongoing. We've had 15 years of air quality regulation piling up one after the next as fast as you can put them together. And, um, you know, those companies that understand the regulations, understand how to work within them and, and guide them in the most cost effective way are more successful than those who are not, especially here in Colorado. And I think with the Inflation Reduction Act, it just emphasizes that this is going nationwide and uh, the strategic portion of air quality and how you build that into your business models becoming ever more important. So we had, well, thank you, Dave. That's really, really good insight. We had Bear Givan, who's the CEO of a company called Earthview that effectively puts methane emission sniffers on wells, but they also put emission sniffers in landfills. And he's flown planes over all these different various areas and seemed to break it down to be, there's a ton of emissions happening in agriculture, um, in oil and gas, as well as in waste. But it seems like oil and gas is probably the most vilified in those regards, maybe because it feels like it could be the most preventable, which to me is is pretty fascinating. Karthik, I'm curious from, from your seat, having built out a modeling solution with all kinds of algorithms and math and smart people stuff that goes on in the back end, how do you see the ability to model and reduce emissions in, say, agriculture or dairies um, or waste versus oil and gas? Is it harder to reduce emissions in those areas? Is it easier? 
what are some of the moves that companies can make and, and how much of an impact do you see these companies having if they do model out their emissions? Yeah, that, that's super interesting because there is absolutely a lot of emissions, especially methane emissions coming from outside of the oil and gas sector. Um, one of our uh, one of the companies that we, we work with very closely is a uh, group called the New Zealand Merino Company, um, and they represent hundreds of family farms in New Zealand um, that produce extremely high quality merino wool. Um, this is wool that goes into um, products from companies like Allbirds and Smart Wool and Icebreaker and Laura Piana and Gucci and, and brands like that. Wow. So you buy a wool suit. Um, guess what? There is methane emissions that came out as a result of producing the wool for that suit or for the socks that you're wearing or for the sweater that you have. What have you? Um, I think that there is, number one, absolutely a different perspective in terms of how people see the um, the defensibility of the emissions, right, at a social level, um, because it's easy to say, well, you know, I'm going to replace my gas car with an EV um, or I'll ride a bike more. But people are not going to say, well, I'm going to stop wearing clothes, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's a there's a certain sure. element of, um, you know, is it replaceable uh, or not? Um, the um, the other aspect of it, I think, is that for certain things, there's a very direct set of levers that you can pull. And for other things, it's much more difficult. Um, so I think this is where the particular solutions that you're going to employ, right? Whether with animals, you could be looking at things like um, biodigesters on site, you can feed the animals different things, reducing the emissions. Fundamentally, you're trying to do the same thing as if you put sniffers on, um, on wells, capping wells, leak detection, all those kind of things. Fundamentally, the impact is the same. We have a leak rate of X and we want to make it Y and how do we do that? Mm. Um, I think the difference is how disperses the problem, right? And specifically, how permanent is that is that solution as well? Mm. If I go in and I retrofit a well, if I cap a well, if I put a sniffer in, how permanent is that five years down the road, 10 years down the road? Am I seeing the problem again? In agriculture, is it a different set of solutions? Um, and what's quite interesting, by the way, is that in a lot of supply chains, these industries come together. So when you think about fashion and you think about uh, sourcing wool, well, guess what? There's oil and there's oil products that go into the clothes you're wearing as well, mm. right? The polyester, the rayon. Um, so you have methane coming from both directions. Um, there's a chemical challenge. And in the production of those chemicals, guess how the fuel um, for those chemical plants, guess where that's coming from? Mm. Um, so there's a lot of intertwinedness and interdependency. Um, so for a lot of companies that are household names, um, you know, you go to, to the store and you buy a product. Um, a lot of these different industries that are facing the challenge on the ground, they're all rolling up in that scope three. Um, and it's, it's really a, um, a spider web type of a challenge, right? So you can't really separate and say, well, oil and gas is going to deal with this and we don't have to deal with it. At the end of the day, you have to deal with it, um, holistically. So we, we have, you know, cert gas, certified natural gas, and you see companies like Project Canary getting involved in that game. Are we going to see certified clothing? Like carbon free clothing is that something that's going to start happening? Yeah, that's a that's a big push um, from the brands that we're working with. Mm. Um, is uh, you know setting very ambitious targets, and actually that's one of the one of the big challenges I think that's causing a lot of the political pressure now um, in terms of what ESG really means is that you've had a lot of groups that have realized for for many many years that saying, hey, we're going to be net zero by a certain date has been really profitable. But now the tone is shifting. You said you're going to be net zero by 2050 or by 2030. Are you getting there? Do you have yeah. a plan? Is, oh. it, is it real? Or are you just you know, taking an ad out in the paper and calling it a day? Um, yeah. And so now we're starting to see that rumbling of, is this real? Are you scamming me? Um, and, and that's going to drive either a reckoning or real dollars being put into um, real world investments that actually get companies to these goals. Yeah. And that's, that's the, the accountability piece that I think everybody is yearning for. And, and I, I have two thoughts that I really want to jump into. One of them, before we, we start talking more specifically around the methane fees, my neighbor is the vice president of sustainability for Crocs. And they have very aggressive and ambitious mandates. Crocs are the shoes, right? They're rubber. They have plans to be net zero by 2030. 
I don't know how you do that with a rubber product. Doesn't fundamentally make sense to me. So I don't know if if or how she's going to be able to achieve that, but that's the goal, right? Somebody put that out there. We're going to be net zero, you know, carbon neutral, carbon positive, whatever by 2030. I don't know how they're going to get there. I don't even know if that's entirely possible. The other piece that I wanted to touch on um, regarding methane fees is just how big are some of these fees and fines going to be for a large operator? So let's take like one of the majors or even a step down like an Oxy or a Devon. Like how significant are these checks that these guys are going to have to write now because of the IRA? And I'm really talking in terms of specifics. Does this tie directly into they have this much production? Does it tie into how much their leaks have been tracked? Like, Dave, give me a sense, if you can, on the, the methane fees and how that's going to play for some of these companies that have significant production profiles. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I've been talking with a lot of companies about this um, and talking in, to a lot of audiences about this. And, you know, it's still unknown right now, totally how much this is going to impact companies. But the largest operators, as I stated earlier, you know, really have done a ton of work around this for a long time. Okay. And they've they've actually divested most of their older assets. Uh, take a look at Shell, for instance. They don't even own, own any onshore U.S. assets anymore. So they're a super major that has solved this in, in their own way. Um, but, you know, a lot of companies, you know, look at this and you, you have to be under the 0.2 percent uh you know, emissions intensity, and then you don't have to pay anything. Uh, and so as long as your production is up and you, you, you're you continuing to drill wells in, in fields and in basins, I, I think the impact's going to be very little. I think the bigger impact is the, you know, impacts of Quad O, B, and C that are coming down the pipe that kind of dovetail into this a little bit as far as attacking this whole methane problem. But um, I don't think the large operators are super worried about this particular fee in and of itself. I think they see the writing on the wall though, and will continue to search for emission reductions and continue to push this. And as you stated, Jeremy, you know, it's really bigger than just the financial impact of the IRA to the, to the companies. It's to their, um, how much their company's worth, their net, their net value is really what's important to them. And in the public eye, if you're emitting a lot of methane, your net value is going to go down now. It's just a fact of the new frontier we're in. Yeah. And so, frankly, for the majors and the super majors, that's much more impactful um, as far as a stock price goes and, and, and valuation of their company than, than this methane fee. Now, where it does hit operators and it hits very hard is those smaller operators in older basins that mm -hmm. haven't had the ability to invest in newer technology or they can't get electrification or they weren't able to get pipelines in place when the, when the field was built long ago, those are the operators that are going to be hurt the most by this. And, and, and it will be significant. It depends on the size of the operator, the smaller the operator, you know, even a $10,000 bill you know, is felt because they're, they're operating out of the low margins of the business. Um, so I think you're going to see kind of an inordinate effect on small to mid-sized operators, and that'll lead to more consolidation of assets, I believe, over time is, is what I predict. Um, as companies, big companies may want to invest in either improving some of these fields or plugging them and shutting them down. Um, and the business of Greenfield is really built around the philosophy of, of working with companies that have to do plugging work and, and do it in a way that they can capture the most ESG positive metrics they can while they do their program. And so that's really my focus here at Greenfield is to help operators demonstrate through quantification efforts before and after a well is plugged, how much methane they've reduced. Mm. So this in turn could lead to, you know, potential carbon credits or, or other things in the marketplace that are emerging, um, That'll be very interesting in the next few years to see what happens. But uh, those carbon credits are pretty elusive at the moment for oil and gas companies because of the additionality uh, requirements and concerns around those. Yeah, I, I do want to understand a little bit more what carbon credits actually mean, because I talk to companies that are creating carbon credit 
exchange platforms. And I'm just, I, I have so many questions around what it even means. Like, how do you buy a carbon credit? How does that actually reduce your emissions if you're buying a carbon credit from somebody else? But we'll talk about that in just a second. Greenfield is fascinating to me. Because my understanding as it relates to field services companies in general, besides a few very, very large field services companies that are pretty well known, is that doing the plugging and abandonment work has been local and it's been a lot of mom and pop shops. My understanding from Greenfield is you guys have gone in fairly big, not only acquiring some of these companies, but trying to standardize the whole P&A market in terms of how you do it. Be very consistent both across basin and across practices and leveraging technology to do so. Is that a cognizant and a concerted effort that you guys have put forth to try to make this sort of a bigger game as opposed to saying, okay, well, we just call the same company that's been doing this for 50 years and they do it how they do it versus establishing some level of standard between the Jonah field right? But between the, the DJ Basin, between the Permian Basin, and try to have some level of consistency. Talk to me a little bit about sort of what the, I guess, the thesis behind what Greenfield is and, and what it's doing. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that, Jeremy. Our vision is really to, uh, <clears throat> to help companies align their plugging efforts around their ESG efforts. Okay. And so really it is a value proposition that we're providing that hasn't been available today uh, in the mom and pop space. So what we would bring to the table is we bring a field-wide approach to P&A that allows companies to benefit from scale in regards to implementing uh, efforts field-wide that can add efficiency, uh, reduce costs, and then most importantly, provide that ESG benefit to back to the company that's currently not being provided. Um, companies aren't measuring the methane emissions before they plug. Uh, wow. They aren't measuring before after they plug right now. <laughs> but uh, we're in a position to be able to do that today. We're in the possession to, in the position to be able to show them the ecological footprint decrease that's created by their plugging or consolidation activities in these fields. Everything from wetlands to wildlife to uh, entomological benefits related to increase in insect populations and thus bird populations and all kinds of mm. benefits that are out that are not being uh, realized today by these companies and the public's unaware you know of these big plugging programs um, that are occurring by say every major operator in the in the US is plugging wells and they're really not taking advantage of the ESG story beside behind that. And that's what Greenfield is designed to do, is help these companies scale, get more efficient in, in when they do have to plug, and then get an additional benefit from an ESG perspective, at least to tell their shareholders uh, what they're doing and what that, those benefits might be. Um, as far as carbon credits go, we can talk all day on that, but um, most companies aren't viewing carbon credits as the big driver for doing this. Um, it's, it's a small ancillary type of Thing they're they're dabbling in, but it's not something uh, companies are really going in for. Uh, as far as uh, these net zero product projections, um, they could help contribute to that. But there's all these questions around additionality that are preventing some operators from using, say, a plugging and abandonment carbon credit for to reduce their current operational offset offsets for methane emissions or, or CO2e. So uh, it's just going to be an interesting and developing space. Um, a lot of the carbon credits available are um, very interesting and they're being attacked. Um, you know, you, you have forest reforestation that's burning mm -hmm. down. You have uh, things that are just being scrutinized. And I'm not here to say whether that's right or wrong, but um, I think there's a, a great debate to be had in the coming years about what is and what is a credible credit carbon credit. and and how that's applied to your net zero goals as a company. Oh, that's, that's good stuff. So it seems to me, at least at this point, and I do think this is going to shift, that companies like Actual, companies like Greenfield, are not only kind of environmental ESG and ESG tech companies, but also educating, right? Like that's a significant part of your job right now. And in, in the case of Greenfield, like how much retraining is there 
of the existing staff that you had, because maybe they did it one way previously. And now you're saying, well, we're taking a different approach, right? It's still the same people. It's still the same, same skilled hands, but now they have yeah, to do the things way, differently. Yeah. The way we're looking at it is um, these are skilled individuals. They're skilled workers. They have a huge, vast amount of abilities and resources available to them. So, you know, with we with us trying to be as most efficient as possible with regards to methane quantification, we don't want to have to mobilize a whole nother crew out there, right. but rather we can retrain um, one of our operators to to do this work. And so we're looking at building this into our platform such that it will not cost our customers much at all, if anything. And in fact, it's just going to be an added benefit of using a company like Greenfield. Um, and the the workforce itself. You know, they go home at night every day and talk to their families. They hear about climate change in schools. They want to be proud of who they work for. And I can't yep. tell you how many of our folks I've talked to who are so excited about the future of this company and where we're headed and the stories they can take home to their families and their schools and things about them actually reducing emissions uh, through their job efforts. That uh, this small amount of retraining with them to to get on board with methane is, is welcome and they're bringing it their open arms to it so i think it's very exciting thank you so karthik to, to shift it over to you let's talk carbon credits a little bit so what is a carbon credit what what does this all mean not just for the oil and gas space but for any emitter because i just have a lot of confusion around what it all means yeah so i think you know first i definitely want to echo uh what we've seen uh with what, what, what David was mentioning, which is that I think for a lot of companies that have real emissions on their books, where they have physical processes, physical infrastructure, physical operations, carbon credits are something that's kind of a curiosity. They're, they're buying them, they're, they're using them, but there's also this question mark and actually not, not even a question mark, a real realization that you cannot rely on credits to get to net zero mm. um, at that scale. Um, credits make a lot of sense when the technology isn't available to cut your emissions, when you have very small amount of emissions. If you're, you know, your company is just a few people on laptops sitting at home, there's not a lot you can change. Uh, so sure, buy some credits. Um, but if you are running an operation with hundreds of farms, if you're running an operation with thousands of distribution sites, tens of thousands of trucks, what have you, the way you get to net zero is by investing in assets that don't pollute. Um, what a carbon credit essentially is, is, hey, I don't really have a good way of cutting my emissions, or I don't really know how to cut my emissions, or I don't want to cut my emissions, so I'll pay you to do it anyways. Okay. Or I'll pay you to do it for me. Um, so this, by the way, is, is one of the really interesting things about a company like Tesla, right? If you buy a Tesla and you charge it at a supercharger, how was supercharging free? Well, supercharging was free because they're paying for the electricity, but every time you charge, you're generating carbon credits. Tesla takes those credits and sells them. Got it. Right. And that's what's paying for that network. What's interesting then is if you charge a supercharger, you technically cannot say that your drive was zero emissions because you're basically taking on the burden of the pollution. You're selling, <laughs> you're Tesla gets to say that. <laughs> well, so so this is where credits start to become really interesting. Um, so we, so there's there's two big concepts in carbon credits that, that start to put a lot of pause for people. Um, the first one is around additionality. So additionality essentially is would this CO2 that was pulled in um, have actually been pulled in if the credit wasn't being purchased? So for example, if I go and I pay to preserve some forest, technically that's generating, you know, and then someone says, hey, by preserving this forest, you're generating carbon credits. You're not really doing anything additional if the forest was going to be around anyways. Right. Right. So there's a lot of debate about that in terms of, well, Someone generated credits by taking someone's money and saying they were going to, you know, not log a forest, but that forest wasn't going to get logged anyways because it wasn't in a great, great area to log. So there's no additionality. Um, the second issue is around permanence. Um, so permanence is a really a big deal. Um, so for example, if you go off and you plant a bunch of trees, and ten years from now those trees burn in a forest fire, um, you didn't actually remove the emissions; you just time shifted them by years. <laughs> um, and so there's, in fact. Um, a, a big question mark around compounding liability when it comes to buying carbon credits. If I buy, you know, a thousand trees worth of carbon credits um, and 10 years from now, those trees burn down. First off, I need to go and replace those, except 
because of climate change, the rate at which fires are happening, the rate at which diseases are spreading is getting faster and faster and faster. Um, and also, um, the cost of those credits are going up and up and up. And also, if I'm continuing to build my net zero strategy on credits, the number of credits I have in my portfolio is going up. So you've got three things that are compounding and accelerating. Um, so this is actually one of the big reasons why for a lot of companies are saying, you know what, carbon credits are something we're dabbling in, but we're going to focus on real investments on our assets to cut those emissions. Because then you have a sense of, okay, there is additionality. If we didn't buy this electric truck, we would have been burning fuel. There's a sense of permanence, right? The electric truck is not polluting relative mm -hmm. to the diesel truck um, and so on and so forth. Um, there's definitely a place for carbon credits, I think, especially when you start to think about newer technologies, carbon capture sequestration that's being put on, oh, yeah. um, on factories and plants. There's some really interesting things that are happening in the marine space um, using uh, lime and other kind of chemical reactions to absorb uh, things. And then there's also um, almost inverse oil wells, if you will, pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere and, and turning it into back into oil, I guess, and, and, and putting them back into wells. Um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff out there. Um, and we're going to, I think, shift a corner around what credits mean um, into things that are additional, that are permanent. Um, but right now, there's a lot of different things out there. And each type of credit has to be looked at and studied on a case-by-case um, -case basis. You know, my, my good buddy, Chuck Yates, also a podcaster at Digital Wildcatters, <clears throat> pointed out to me that whales, like not whales, like somebody in Texas might say about an oil and gas whale, but whales themselves, the mammal, are amazing carbon capture devices. And with the reduction of the amount of whales um, due to all of them that were killed off for oil and things like that over the years, carbon emissions have increased. I don't know, maybe that's just a crazy conspiracy theory, but truly whales, I guess, capture a lot of carbon and when they die, they just sink to the bottom of the ocean which effectively could be a positive thing. Anyways, that's just me on my soapbox talking about whales. As far as carbon credits, is this like a Bitcoin? Like, is there a monetary value assigned to an individual carbon credit? Like one carbon credit's worth $70,000 or something? There is all sorts of values. Um, it depends on, is it a voluntary credit? Is it a... Um, a is it um, is it a mandate? Um, right. There's 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 that. Um, there's credits in terms of how well is it certified. There's credits in terms of is it a nature based solution? Um, is it based on CCUS? Mm. Um, so what is the process that's generating it? Um, these credits can change. The values can change over time. So if you have a massive forest fire and a lot of credit lands, mm. uh, credit producing lands get destroyed. Um, so there's this huge market. I think one of one of the really interesting things that we've seen is that a lot of innovation in the credit space in the last five years or so has been on the financialization of the transaction. But at the end of the day, it's a physical world problem. Um, and I think that's where the real challenges lie. It's not around, are we tracking it? Are we making it a more liquid investment? The real question is, can you prove that there is an additionality and permanence? Can you prove the quality of the credit? Um, and can you actually generate the credit in a way that is sustainable, in a way that is um, socially good? Are you displacing farmers from their land at gunpoint in order to plant trees? That's <laughs> happened, right? Wow. How do you how do you generate credits really cheaply by reducing your costs? How do you reduce your costs? Well, if you can steal the land, that's a really great way to, to reduce those costs, right? So <laughs> there is a social impact to this as well. Um, there are um, government policies that assume a certain amount of credit generation um, that are basically being shown not to not to be true. You know, a big part of the state of California's climate goals is based on a certain amount of reforestation. Guess what California is facing a lot of now? Wildfires. Mm. Um, there's a systemic overcrediting in California's forests. There's more credits being generated than actual carbon being captured. Um, and this has been a number of studies in the, in the last year that have shown this. Um, so I think in the credit space, there's the financial transaction piece. The rails are there. It's not that hard to buy and sell them and trade them. Um, but what's physically happening in the real world, that's the whole purpose of buying the credit. That's a lot harder to show. And that's really why a lot of companies are saying, you know what, our investment is going to go into emissions reductions because mm. I can see that. I can see the impact of spending this dollar versus wiring somebody some money and hoping that it worked out. Yeah. So 
like most things in the ESG world, it's uh, fairly ambiguous, right? It, it's changing consistently. And it, even though there is a monetary value put on it, it varies as to what the monetary value actually is. Dave, I want to, uh, before we wrap up, shoot this over to you. So I've had a number of people on this podcast. I live out here in Colorado. I have friends who work in the oil and gas space and the oil and gas field services world. And they're confident that here especially, we're doing the best job possible and a better job certainly than other countries every time we drill, complete, and produce a well. So we're seemingly doing the right things or moving in a direction where things like the IRA are continuing to impact the right behavior and influence people to do those right things. But then what do we do about other countries that may not be nearly as clean, that definitely aren't nearly as clean or don't have IRAs coming down the pipe? That's still going to create some emissions. So do we just throw our hands up and say, well, we're doing our best? Like, how, how does this work from an international perspective? Well, that's a, that's a tough question. Um, <clears throat> I think it comes down to the consumer's choice, um, you know, where you're buying your energy from. And, and there's a, a component of that's that's related to LNG, obviously, and how you characterize your LNG or your, your shipment of oil um, across the world. And buyers, basically consumers need to demand uniformity of reporting of emissions so then they can actually decide on which product they want to buy. Right. And until that happens, I don't think you're going to see much change there. I think you're going to see lower price oil coming out of higher emitting nations consistently that go to other higher emitting nations uh, that don't really care about it. And as far as the U.S. goes, I don't know what we can do about that. I think Europe has a pivotal, pivotal role right now in regards to how they're managing their current energy crisis. Um, and I, th I think as a net energy exporter, you know, we, we're just really under the gun to demonstrate how low emitting our fossil fuel production is and how we're continuing to address that going forward in ever, ever more uh, pressing, pressing ways. And I, I think that uh, as far as some of these higher emitting nations, I don't have the answer. I don't know how to uh, turn Angola around or somebody like that that's producing yeah. a, a higher emitting barrel of oil or a higher emitting MCF of natural gas. Uh, but it, it comes down to the buyer ultimately. So you're going to get a world where there's going to be clean energy producers and buyers. And that's where the United States has to be in that clean energy spectrum. And then I think you're going to have the lower cost, uh, dirty spectrum, regardless of what policies and procedures we put in place as a nation. It's just inevitable, and that's just my opinion. But. Yeah. Well, Karthik, you travel internationally a ton, so I'm sure you, you see lots of differences. Um, where does the U.S. kind of stack up from our desire to be a – or to have a low-carbon footprint compared to some of the other places you travel to? Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. The, the reality is Europe certainly has a pivotal role to play in terms of driving um, the – the emissions reductions. Um, there, there's a carbon border adjustment mechanism that's coming into in, into play in the next couple of years, and probably a methane border adjustment as well. So, looking at the carbon embedded in a product um, and basically charging fines and fees mm. at the border, right? So, if you're building a car, you're building uh, you know, some electronics, whatever, and you're shipping it to Europe, you have to then account for the entire supply chain emissions and wow. figure out how to offset that, right? So, if the energy to make you know the battery pack is uh, being produced here in the U.S. and the battery pack factories here in the U.S. and those batteries are being shipped to the EU to be finally integrated into the car, there's going to be pressure on the American battery manufacturer to reduce those emissions. And that's going to go down to the energy provider, right? Whether it's the utility, whether it's whoever's providing the natural gas for the factory, for the shipping and what have you. Um, Europe is interesting, of course, because simultaneously, they're also cranking up uh, fossil fuel imports. They're recommissioning coal plants. They're doing mm -hmm. all these things because you're not going to let your people freeze in the middle of winter. Um, so there's a, there's a question mark about how effective are um, some of these policies really going to be in the short term. Um, but I think the, the key thing to keep in mind is that, um, and this is something I saw firsthand, you know, with my first company building uh, consumer electronics is that supply chains are really tightly integrated around the world. Mm -hmm. And so the regulations, you could have a set of regulations in the EU that drive what technologies are being 
deployed on a manufacturing line in China, whether or not your product is being exported to the EU, because that manufacturing line is also building components for products that go to the EU. So there's a lot of interdependencies. Um, what that means is if that manufacturing line is sending products to China, or from China to the EU, it's going to be buying energy in a way where it's not going to be hit by that carbon border adjustment mechanism. Um, so it's this really complex intertwined web. Um, and I think that historically when people think about regulation, when they think about, um, about policy, there's a very local perspective, right? Here's what my state is saying. Here's what my country is saying. As long as I'm compliant, I'm good. And now really the way you have to think about it is, who are my customers? Where are my customers mm -hmm. operating? Where are they selling to? What are the regulations of the places that they're selling to? And how does that flow back through to me? Everybody is part of someone's scope three. And a big part of where ESG and sustainability is moving towards is away from purely within my perimeter, how do I look good? <laughs> and it's turning into how do I make sure that my customers look good? What do I have to invest in today so that my customers are going to continue buying? energy, supplies, components, parts from me versus being designed out. Um, and interestingly, you know, your, your question about what is the IRA going to do here in the U.S., what the IRA is doing is it's providing tax credits for companies in the U.S. to make goods and products and components much more cleanly than anywhere else in the world. And there's now rumblings in Europe about how unfair that is that Europe may not be able to produce goods that meet its own requirements wow. as competitively as the U.S., right? And so now what does that mean? Does the U.S. have a leg up? Probably for the next several years, unless the EU is able to free up some cash and invest the same amount domestically as well. Um, so this is super interesting. I wish I could predict the future better. Um, all I can say is it's going to be super interesting and... Um, there's going to be a lot of uh, really interesting dynamics that play out as a result of these kind of links. Fascinating discussion. Well, wanted to thank you guys for coming on. I feel like this is the type of thing where you guys need to come back on every six or 12 months and give us an update on how this is actually working in practicality. But just a quick shout out to both Actual and Greenfield companies doing really good work um, in the emissions reduction, oil and gas space, and um, really leveraging um, best of breed expertise with people like Karthik and David. So thank you guys for making time to come on What the Funk today. I learned a lot. Hopefully the listeners did as well. And um, boy, this is a convoluted topic. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>